Welcome back to the Self Healers Soundboard, How to Do the Work Masterclass. Today, we'll be deep diving into Chapter 3, A New Theory of Trauma. In today's episode, we'll talk about how trauma has historically been defined and introduce a new, more expansive definition of trauma, including the archetypes of childhood trauma, childhood conditioning, and as always, at the end of the episode, we will answer some of your call-in questions from last week. For a very long time, trauma has been a widely misunderstood concept. Um, historically, the label of trauma has been applied to an event, particularly events that pass a certain threshold. Um, I think what comes to mind for us most commonly are those instances, as we often call them, the big T traumas mm -hmm. of abuse, physical, sexual, neglect. Um, and it wasn't until the 90s where a very groundbreaking research study investigated first an assessment tool called the ACEs scale, Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale. Um, and this research study really for the first time showed that experiences that we have in childhood, experiences again of those big T traumas, verbal abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse or neglect, divorce, active substance use, and having a parent who's incarcerated, if and when those experiences happen to us in childhood, we finally, for the first time in the 90s, have had research evidence that shows that we carry various negative outcomes, some in our physical bodies with higher instances of, of chronic illness, and some in our, in our psychology, higher instances of substance abuse and suicide. So when these big T traumas or these events happen in childhood, we are finally mapping them onto long-term events into mm -hmm. our adult lives. So again, like I said, this was really groundbreaking because similar to all of what we've been talking about here in the masterclass and in the book, this really did show the lasting imprint that trauma has on our minds and our bodies, regardless of when it happened. And for some of us, this might be childhood, for many of us, is decades ago. So I, you know, learning this in the field was validated. It was, okay, this is the first time that we are really seeing that we carry events with us in time, regardless of when they happen. And of course, this mapped on to many of the clients that I had been seeing that scored very high on this scale, upwards of a 10 even. However, what made me really confused was when I myself took that same scale. Um, I'll share my, my score. It's a one, which is quite low. Um, and I began to see many other clients who similarly scored really low on that ACEs scale, yet seemed to me, and in my own life, I continued to see evidence of the same coping patterns, um, of the same experiences regardless of having that big bad event and those of us who didn't see mm -hmm. that we had those big bad events. So first and foremost, I was confused. I was really seeking to understand why so many of us were struggling um, in absence of having the reason to struggle per se. The ACEs framework or Adverse Childhood Experiences framework is really valuable in connecting our childhood experiences to our adult outcomes. I know for me personally, this ACEs framework was incredibly validating as I scored a 10 on this framework and it really gave me a lot of validation and context from the extreme childhood experiences or traumas that had happened and the adult outcomes or really the results that I had experienced in, you know, psychologically, emotionally, physically as an adult because of those traumas in childhood. And one of those biggest symptoms or byproducts of these big T traumas, we can call them, is dissociation or what we refer to often as going off on our spaceship. So being there present 
well, your body being there present in the moment and mentally kind of escaping or or going away. So we're going to dive a bit deeper into dissociation. Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, a trauma expert and the author of the groundbreaking book, The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body and the Healing of Trauma, describes dissociation as a process of simultaneously knowing and not knowing, and says that traumatized people who disengage simultaneously remember too little and too much. Some of you might be familiar with this concept of dissociation um, as publicized by a diagnosis called disassociative identity disorder, which was also once known as multiple personality disorder. And I share this um, because I believe that many of us are dissociating along a spectrum, though, again, this very extreme version has been shown where we literally embody separate selves. And when we're in our alter or our different self, we actually don't have any memory for all of the other aspects of our life. So, of course, I was very fascinated with this topic. Um, I read the book Sybil, one of the first books. Um, I forget how many alters the, the patient in that book had, but several. So I met this concept and I bring this up because this was another point of confusion for me. Here I am learning that these people who suffer severe trauma actually do fully disconnect from the Mm -hmm. self. And again, this didn't map onto my experience. I didn't have the idea that I was walking around in these altered selves. Again, I came to realize how so many of us are dissociating. Um, We are living, like you just beautifully described, disconnected from the self. We're physically here um, for a very long time. Like Jenna described, I I share that I was living on a spaceship. Mm. To an outward observer, you might never have known. I was carrying on conversations. I had relationships around me. Um, You might not have known how mentally gone I was. Some of us even dissociate through action. The overachievers, the, per- the perfectionists who are always going, going, going. And again, from the external viewpoint, they look like they're you know in their body experiencing what they're quote unquote doing. Though a lot of us in that form of dissociation through doing are not actually connected to, to the feelings of maybe what we're doing. So for so many of us, dissociation actually becomes, as far as I see it, our default coping strategy. When we experience stress, and some of us even become hypervigilant, where less and less amounts of stress activate this default response to the extent that I would go as far to say, Jenna, and I think that you would agree in so many ways with this, having met me (laughs) in different stages of my journey, that I was very much living in different degrees of dissociation. I was more or less always on some version of my spaceship. Um, And this has many different results. Um, For some of us who live disconnected, we're actually being, we're disconnecting ourselves from our intuition, that inner sense of knowing. Um, A byproduct of that, many of us struggle to trust ourselves. We don't hear our intuition pinging. Mm. And we're many times looking outside of ourselves, asking our friends, asking our family, asking experts Mm -hmm. for answers um, when it is that deeper place that knows. Another byproduct, and I know because I've lived this, we have a general state of detachment or a lack of connection to others in our relationships. So like I said, I had people around me. I appear to be very social. If you would have asked me, though, how deeply connected I felt in these relationships, it wouldn't have been much. I felt very empty and very unfulfilled. Another very common um, 
byproduct of living in different stages of dissociation, one that I talk about often is a lack of memory. Um, I learned very early on when I began to share experiences or lack thereof with my friends in around high school, it became appear apparent to me that I had limited memory, not only for things that happened last week, the fun I was having with my friends, not because I was drinking too much, though that was part of it sometimes, um, though for general things, you know, when friends would ask me, what was childhood like? How were holidays when you were five, six years old? Mm -hmm. I really had this blank screen. And again, we all, I think, are living in different stages of dissociation. So some of you listening are probably resonating with some of those byproducts. And as far as I see it, when we're disconnected from ourself, our physical self for some of us, our emotional self for others, our spiritual essence, that inner knowing, we suffer the same overwhelm and the same trauma, even in absence of having that big cataclysmic event that we once only believed was the pathway to this dissociation. It's, I have a twin brother, like I've shared before, and he, this has been such an interesting journey for me you know, understanding and studying and learning more about dissociation and really reflecting back on my life. Because a lot of those moments, like you're saying, Nicole, where you really don't have memories, there's a lot of the majority of my childhood, I truly just don't remember. It's almost like there was a blackout. And I can see why now, especially when I look at, well, you are a 10 on the ACEs score, then there were a lot of these big T traumas happening. And I mentioned my twin because we lived, while we're two separate people that lived two separate lives from separate lenses, we also lived the same life in many ways side by side. And he was a bit more present for a lot of the moments or the even traumas that happened and a little less on a spaceship, I'm sure in ways he was. But I say that he was less because when I will speak to him or reflect back, and now too with my older brother, share memories of our childhood that I don't have, I couldn't recall them on my own. And when they speak about them and they bring context to them, for some of them, it's like a floodgate literally opens in my mind and my body goes back to that place, the memory floods back in, and I realize, oh, it's really powerful for me and I'm really grateful to have them and that sort of contrast and reflection because it shows me now in real time actual things or actual adverse experiences or traumas, really chaotic times that I was away on a spaceship, I did dissociate, and I can see how now too, you know, Nicole mentioned being in constantly doing things. Like you could also be in a dissociation and still be calm and not be chaotic and crazy um, or have, you know, friends all around you or be in constant relationships, but really not have that depth there. And if for anyone who's watching or listening who has known me personally over the years, you can see it's my life has sort of been like popcorn where I've just fluttered around to a new city, met a bunch of people, created a new network, created a whole life. And then I've packed up everything, donated most of my stuff, moved to a new city and done it all again and done it very joyously and like curiously. I've loved it. And I see now too, that was also a function and a mechanism of myself dissociating. Even now I've lived in LA for the last year and a half. And I think it's doing this and being here now with Nicole is the longest I've really ever been settled and truly doing the same thing consistently with stability and also a projection into the future. So even now I'm getting a real time, first time experience of what it's like to actually be off the spaceship and fully be present. 
Yeah, that's a really great example. I'm happy you're sharing that. And so I lived, you know, very much similarly, the doer. I always appear mm-hmm. to be achieving in life, to be hitting milestones, to be moving forward and accumulating, right, all of those external validations. I think that so many of us seek. And for me, I understood that I wasn't present. Mm-hmm. Um, there were so many moments, even the most recent with my, my when I got my PhD, I received my license and I would have people around me, oh, aren't you excited? Wow, how must this feel? To, <laughs> I can't even tell you how many years I was in school trying to obtain these degrees and these licenses and here I am. And it was so hard for me and there was a part of me that wondered why I didn't feel so mm-hmm. excited. Why didn't I feel like I've quote unquote made it? Um, like I knew I appeared on the outside. And again, for me, it was because I was doing, I was acu- accumulating all of these external validators, but I wasn't feeling about mm-hmm. it. I wasn't actually in my body to see and to ask myself and to understand how it felt when I did receive those things. So I think this is important to share because I, like I said, I think many of us have one idea of what some of these words or definitions mm-hmm. mean. Um, and then we're left feeling broken, feeling confused about why we're continuing to struggle in many of those same ways. So going into, and I love that you brought your brother up because I think what's so important in your highlighting is how different two people's mm-hmm. experience of one event can be. I meet this often even in my family. Um, I have two older siblings. My sister's 15 years older than me and my brother's 18 years older than me. Again, while we grew up more or less in the same household, my brother was a little bit more out of the home when I was born. We couldn't have more different narratives around childhood and who mom is, who dad is, Mm -hmm. and what their roles are and were and have been for each of us. So again, really highlighting how dissimilar our experiences may be, even if on the outside, we're weathering them as the same family unit. So we really dove a little bit here into dissociation, which we've talked about as a byproduct of trauma. So in this episode and what we're talking about here in this book, how to do the work, what exactly is trauma? Yeah, so trauma, again, like like historically, we applied this label to an event. Um, I believe, and, and the work that we, we put out is really honoring that it isn't necessarily the event itself mm. that makes something traumatic or overwhelming for us. Again, it's our individual experience of the event, which does allow, like we've been sharing, for differences. Something to keep in mind that's really important, especially when we're going back to think about or to explore our childhood experiences, is that we're doing so from an adult vantage point or perspective, an adult level of maturity, right, or development. So when we look back, so many of us can minimize what now appears to be small events in our childhood. What's really important to understand is how how we were developmentally in our childhood, namely how helpless we were and how in need of others to help us to regulate ourselves we were. We were very limited in our ability to cope with stress with the world around us. So many of what could appear in adulthood to be a very small event, in reality, when we honor how helpless we were as children, how dependent we were as children, how overwhelming our emotions felt in general as children, now we can begin to understand that it isn't the event itself. It's the impact of the event. It's how how regulated was my nervous system in particular to deal with the stress of what happened. And this opens the door for much smaller things 
to result in overwhelming stress and related childhood trauma that we carry with us into adulthood. So again, it can impact two people very differently, the same event. And this allows us to really honor how it was for us and honor the experiences that were overwhelming for us and that do still carry patterns into adulthood. It's really powerful what you're saying that, you know, trauma is there's something that happened. There is an experience that happened and what happened happened. We're talking about trauma here as the response and the impact that trauma had on you or in your body, what was going on for you, not necessarily the experience itself, which brings us to a beautiful part in the book. Um, I'm going to read directly from the book here. It's on page 45 for anyone listening or viewing who has the book with you if you want to read along or follow along. Um, I'm going to start in the second paragraph and then read childhood conditioning. Trauma occurred when we consistently betrayed ourselves for love, were consistently treated in a way that made us feel unworthy or unacceptable, resulting in a severed connection to our authentic self. Trauma creates the fundamental belief that we must betray who we are in order to survive. Childhood conditioning. A parent figure's role is to be a guide. A loving parental relationship provides a secure base for a child to return to as they venture out into life with all the ups and downs associated with this great transition. A guide is largely non-judgmental, allowing the child to exist as they are. A guide is more likely to observe and act from a state of awareness and wisdom. This allows the child to experience the natural consequences of their actions without intervention and, the and laying the foundation for them to build self-trust. Think of the guide as a wise teacher, someone who has faith in the foundation they have provided and trusts that the student will be able to weather what life brings. The child then internalizes this faith. This doesn't mean that the child avoids pain, loss, anger, or grief. The wide array of human feelings. Instead, the guide or parent figure has provided a base of security and resilience for the child to return to when hard times come. If parent figures have not healed or even recognized their unresolved traumas, they cannot consciously navigate their own path in life, let alone act as trustworthy guides for someone else. It's very common for parent figures to project their unresolved traumas onto their children. When even well-meaning parent figures react under the influence of their own unconscious wounds, they, instead of offering guidance, may attempt to control, micromanage, or coerce a child to follow their will. Some of these attempts may be well-intentioned. Parent figures may consciously or unconsciously want to keep the child safe and protected from the world so that the child will not experience the pain that they themselves have. In the process, they may negate the child's wants and needs. Even when this can seem intentional, these reactions often stem from their own deep-rooted pain, which may not be visible on the surface. Many of us were raised by parent figures who had difficulty navigating their emotions as a result of their own unresolved childhood pain. They may have projected this onto us directly when they urged us not to cry or indirectly when they would withdrew in response to our, to our displays of emotion. According to Lindsay Gibson, a psychotherapist and the author of Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents, How to Heal from Distant, Rejecting, or Self-Involved Parents, this lack of emotional connection in childhood leaves, quote, a gaping hole where true security might have been. The loneliness of feeling unseen by others is, a fund, is as fundamental a pain as physical injury, end quote. This emotional loneliness continues into adulthood when we repeat these patterns of emotional avoidance, shutdown, and shaming. 
Though there are many, this is truly one of the most beautiful and profound passages in this book to me, as we're talking about a caretaker or parent figure of a child truly being a witness or a guide, sort of with open arms, creating this safety and self-trust for a child to go forth into the world and navigate themselves, as we all came here into this world as perfect, whole and complete human beings able to do so. And it's parenting and caretaking is a very tall order, as any of you out there listening or viewing likely know. And for everyone who is not a parent figure or caretaker, you are the child of one in some way. So it's a beautiful illumination and reminder here that while we are navigating through our own unresolved traumas and pains, our caretakers and parent figures are also doing the same, whether consciously or unconsciously. Now that we're talking about this role or experience of a parent figure or caretaker, we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what we're calling the different archetypes of childhood trauma. I'm going to read these directly from the book. So for anyone listening or viewing, if you have the book, it's page 48, the archetypes of childhood trauma. I'm going to list them all. And then Nicole and I are going to go in and explain and dive a little bit deeper into each. First, having a parent who denies your reality. Having a parent who does not see or hear you. Having a parent who vicariously lives through you or molds and shapes you. Having a parent who does not model boundaries. Having a parent who is overly focused on appearance. And having a parent who cannot regulate their emotions. Now, this first one, having a parent figure who denies your reality. Let's dive a little bit more into what that looks like in childhood. Absolutely. Before we dive in, I want to just note here that what's important to keep in mind is that these instances that we're going to describe or these examples are ones that happen consistently, mm -hmm. right? These aren't the one-offs that one day, right, where our parent was unable to say, regulate their emotions. This is a consistent pattern, and this applies for all of the below. So talking a little bit about having a parent who denies our reality. So common examples of this are, you know, having a child or in childhood coming home, having feelings hurt, you know, something that happened on the schoolyard. And when the child goes home to share it with whomever the parent figure was at the time available, being met with a response of minimizing, maybe being told it wasn't a big deal, don't worry about it, some version of you're fine. Um, another example of this that I, I've heard common and I can relate to myself being a very shy child, um, being urged, those of us that are shy or who are uncomfortable mm -hmm. socializing, maybe in groups in general, or maybe with that one particular group or that one particular person that for whatever reason made us uncomfortable in childhood. Instead of, of having that received by our, our parent figure, some of us weren't met with, with that compassion and were instead told to, to go, to go make friends or to go hug whomever to be social or to be quote unquote nice. Now, again, when this begins to happen consistently, um, what we begin to do is defer. We begin to override what we're feeling about a situation in favor of what our parent figures tell us to feel. 
It's important to remember here that when we're talking about this consistent denying of reality by a caretaker or parent figure, it isn't necessarily with some malicious intent. It's not intentional to harm. And a great example of this that I know occurred for me a lot in my childhood is this constant consoling or being told, you know, it's okay, it's okay. Where I will give this example, like a bomb could be going off next to me and it's as if someone would still be there rubbing my back and saying, it's okay, it's okay, if someone was even there in the first place. So it could be some, you know, really painful event going on. Or I know when my parents were getting divorced, there was really nasty custody battles for a multitude of years. And a lot of some of these arguments resulted in, you know, us hiding out in hotels as children. And you know that there's these really crazy things happening. I'm running to a hotel and hiding. My mom is screaming every time a car turns the corner, thinking that it's my father coming and, you know, vice versa. I have the same thing over here on my dad's side. So knowing that all that's happening, it's clearly very chaotic. There's a lot of emotion there. Um, and while it's all happening, I know something's not okay. And the default as a parent or what I experience is, you know, console your kids, tell them it's okay, reassure them, try and create a safe space. And that was actually in that moment by saying, it's okay, it's okay. I sort of began to learn that, you know, all of these big T's or traumas or chaotic events could be occurring. And it just started to become okay, okay. And I can even see in myself as an adult where I did learn to sort of disregard my own gut or really default to others to, to, to create the reality that was happening around me, to let me know if things were good or bad instead of using my own judgment and my own intuition because really I was, I was taught to push away from that even in a subconscious way from my own mother because she was dealing with what she was dealing with at the time, her own pain, her own trauma. And in that moment, the best tool that she was equipped to do was to console us with, it's okay, it's okay, which is actually an example of a parent figure denying that reality. And again, not denying it with malicious intent. It was actually quite the opposite. I appreciate you sharing that, Jenna. And that's a really good point. Um, quite often, the reasons why parents do this is because they do feel mm -hmm. some version of discomfort or they're so maybe dissociated or cut off that mom might have been on her spaceship that day and to her it was okay because mm -hmm. she wasn't right emotionally connected to what was happening others have had the same experience you come home from that childhood you share crying a feeling of being rejected by maybe your peer group which is a big deal as a child maybe you had a parent figure who had that same experience so from often very well-intentioned place not wanting to see their own child struggle or suffer in the same way might have come with what they believe to be good mm -hmm. advice, right? It's not a big deal, right, from this adult perspective. So I really appreciate you highlighting that. And oftentimes it isn't malicious. It isn't an uh, intention of I'm going to deny my child's reality. Quite often the parent figures don't even realize that they're, they're mm -hmm. doing it. Or again, they're doing it from their out of their own self-protection because the feelings of seeing someone that they love very dearly in pain at minimum could be very overwhelming. And then of course, like I said earlier, you have the parent figures that might've lived the same experience. So now they have their actual own trauma memory of how terrible it was for them. And again, they might not be responding in, in the most helpful way, um, but from their perspective, it was very well-intentioned. So I appreciate you, you pointing that out. Um, and what's important to understand is how it was for us being that child, right? That was having chaos around us and not having someone who was saying, yes, Janet, this is chaotic. Mm -hmm. It might feel scary. It's happening. 
and will be okay, as opposed to minimizing and avoiding or denying what's happening. And for those parents in these situations or children who have experienced this with your own parent figures or caretakers, in that moment, you know, being able, instead of saying it's okay, it's okay, having the language or the knowledge of what to do in that moment to be attuned to that child, to comfort them, to explain the situation, those are all skills. Those are all very learned skills and tools that most of us didn't have growing up. Most of our parents and caretakers did not have those. That's a large part of what probably brought you here, either listening or viewing today, is that in this book especially, we talk about these tools. We're giving tools for you to tangibly put into practice into your lives. So just also remember this expectation of, you know, well, why did that happen to me? Why didn't weren't they equipped? It's a skill to learn these and it takes practice. So also this is a really great place to anyone who is viewing or listening now to really acknowledge yourself for doing so because it does take something for you to show up and be willing to even discover or acknowledge that these things are occurring or have occurred and to really take ownership and responsibility for it to to learn these tools to be able to have those conversations to to change what it is that we are passing down to future generations absolutely and another really common um, slightly different version of this that happens really often in childhood um, again consistently those of us who had parent figures who over time weren't able to see us to hear us to reflect our beliefs our emotions who we are in our self-expression back to us. And again, there's many different examples of what this looks like in childhood. Um, often it looks like parent figures who are overwhelmed, maybe with their own feelings, maybe with distress in general, the stress of keeping a home, of raising a family, um, of showing up day in and day out. And as a result of this stress, the caregiver, the parent figure might be overwhelmed, might be distracted, might be caught up in their own feelings and might not have the resources to share that space of self-expression, to see, to hear you, to be fully present to do so. And when we're in what often happens, either that state of overwhelm or some of us do the complete opposite, we're in a state of shutdown. Mm -hmm. We're actually not able to be a recipient to the people around us, our children included. Um, and so that's another really, really common example that is slightly different than denying reality. It's when our self-expression, when who we are, when there's no space for it or when it's denied. Being a child of this archetype, having a parent who does not hear or see you, over time as an adult can look like the diminishing of your own self-expression, your own soul expression or authentic self. Or if you have grown up not having that caretaker or parent figure hearing or seeing or acknowledging what's happening, then over time you slowly begin to sort of shut that piece down. You begin to sort of retreat. You begin to share less and really diminish that outward and emotional expression. This lack of feeling seen or heard and this diminished authentic self-expression over time then leads to the strengthening of a core belief that you're unworthy or unlovable. You're not being seen. You're not being heard. You're not feeling acknowledged. Your authentic self has now started to tell itself to, to quiet down, to retreat back. In this scenario, the child begins to personalize the pain of their parents and begins to shame and blame themselves. And it's important to remember here that this inability of the parent figure or caretaker to hear or see the child is most often a result of that parent figure's inability to 
understand and resolve their own pain. They didn't necessarily have this book. They didn't have the tools in order to do so. So that lack of hearing, that lack of seeing, again, is not born from a malicious intent. It instead is the result or byproduct of the parent's own unresolved pain and trauma. I appreciate you acknowledging that. And my lived experience, my story um, really highlights that. So coming, being born into a home where there was active illness, there was mm -hmm. active stress very consistently. So when I share that, you know, I did not feel seen by my mother, um, a large reason was because she was unable. She was really distracted in pain herself, living in her own stress spiral of chaos. And she didn't have literally the resources available to see me, to reflect me back. My mom spent a lot of her time probably on a very similar spaceship mm -hmm. in some version of shutdown. And when we're in shutdown, we're actually going to talk, I think next week, um, we dive into the chapter on the body and how trauma lives in the body and the nervous system in particular. So when we're talking about shutdown, we're actually talking about a nervous system state, which closes us. We, we are not receptive to the people around us. Doesn't matter that they're our child, who I know in my mom's heart, she did love. Um, she did believe she was showing up for me to, to love me, to support me, and yet she was unable to. So it's not... It's not in a malicious thing like Jenna's describing. Quite often, it's a lack of resources. Mm -hmm. Very interestingly, some of us don't fully diminish ourselves. We highlight parts of ourselves that mm -hmm. were seen. So one area that my mom was very able to see and celebrate me was when I achieved. When I achieved academically, which started the moment I entered school. I was very good. I scored very high marks. And that was followed very quickly with athletics. Um, I got very good at softball very quickly. So in those areas, I did feel very, very seen by my, my mother in particular. So it's interesting. Some of us might not fully diminish all aspects of ourselves, but we get very attuned. And when we have that parent who's largely distracted, we can find the areas that, that grab their attention. And I did just that. So what did I become? An overachiever. The person who it no longer mattered to me that I was achieving. So it's not a surprise that I was sharing earlier. I had all of these letters after my name and I felt nothing because I learned to channel my way of being seen was through achievement. By the time I got to adulthood, it didn't matter if the achievement made me feel good. That was the only way I was used to being seen and loved by those around me. I appreciate that example. It, for me, this I'm realizing as you're speaking, because I'm thinking in real time, well, how did this look for you in childhood? And it went into really extreme independence where, I mean, my father was largely gone. He was a truck driver all throughout my younger, youngest years, probably till about seven or eight when they went through this custody battle then over a number of years. And my father ended up leaving, moving back to his home in Pennsylvania and didn't come back. So then it was my mom and three children um, who, as you may know, would then have to work to support us. So the majority of my life, we'll say all of my life, actually, he, my father was gone and my mother was also gone working to support us. So my brothers and I, my twin brother and I, and our older brothers a year older, quite literally raised ourselves with the help of our neighbors and, you know, the tribes around us. We learned to become fiercely independent. And I'm seeing now how 
this lack of being seen or heard was largely also that there was actually just a lack of anyone around. There was a lack of adult mm -hmm. around. And when there was an adult around, it was in very small snippets. And I can see now too, if my mom is working, you know, double shifts and coming home exhausted to three children, are, you know, scraping things together just to feed us or to clothe us, I can understand why there's an inability to be present. There's an extreme lack of resources on her end. And that I see now channeled to me as just, I did my own thing. My brothers and I really did learn how to raise ourselves to become independent where I then didn't really even look for that connection. I didn't look for that expression with my mother to have that attunement. I didn't have that sort of parent relationship. I kind of just I went about my day and did my own thing and our my brothers did the same. So it's just interesting hearing you speak and thinking maybe as you're viewing and listening, thinking back on your own life of how this can how this can pop up so differently for people where it may send you into overachieving to be noticed, whereas I as a child just kind of dipped out and did my own thing and just became fiercely independent. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you you bringing up this point because this really does apply to everyone out there, especially if you're a parent figure or a caretaker of any sort who's living in any version of insecurity or mm -hmm. in threat. Right when our when our basic needs aren't met, when we walk outside and we feel you know at risk, we do we do become destabilized. We do struggle then to hold the space that we're talking mm -hmm. about for even the children around us. So again, this really does apply to stress and our ability to tolerate stress. And when we can't, or when our caregivers can't, many of them really do lack the resources to show up in that receptive state like we're talking about and to be that mirror. So it's very common um, and it does look very different like Jenna is pointing out. Another example of, of childhood experiences are those of us that had parent figures who maybe were present and were vicariously living through us or trying to mold and trying to shape us. So really common example of this, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with, is the stage parent, right? Mm -hmm. The person, the parent who's commonly, this is associated with, I think, beauty pageants or any sort of, you know, kind of grooming the child for, for success in any area. So stage parent is a really common one. Um, we can call that a more extreme version in some senses, though there's many more unconscious ways that messages are being shared to us, with us, around us, that shape our behavior. Again, this is oftentimes unconscious, oftentimes very well-intentioned. I mean, a lot of times it's related to success, what we're gonna do in life, our career paths. Sometimes some of us get this message really directly when we're told you'll be a good, insert whatever it is our parent figure imagined we'd be good at when we grew up. And sometimes again, it's much more indirect um, where some careers or journeys or paths in life are talked about quote unquote positively um, and others are, are given more negative assessment. So it looks very different. The messages here, however, do become ingrained. They do have an impact. And over time, they do begin to shape how we show up in the world. As an adult, this may result in life choices being more based on gaining love and approval externally than following our own authentic self or wants and needs and desires. So in many ways, we begin to abandon our own authentic self, our own intuition, and truly our own path that we came onto this earth for to default and fulfill on the 
the conditioning or the desires and projection of our parent figures. And again, here it's a lot of those things, a lot of milestones that we're conditioned to to want to meet or this success that we're wanted to have by our caretaker does come from a space of, you know, wanting security for you, wanting you to be safe, wanting you to have a life of happiness, maybe even having something that that parent lacked. And we learn more and more every day that this safety and security in many ways does not necessarily equate to happiness, not if that safety and security is a fulfilling of the projection or desire of a parent figure and actually an abandonment of your own authentic self. You know, if you've got that PhD, you've reached this milestone, you're at this place in your life or your career, you're making this money, you're living in a great place that's safe and secure, you may also notice that you're wildly unhappy in many ways or wildly unfulfilled in some ways, small or big. And often that is connected to the fact that you've chosen to go down a path that did feel right. There was approval, there was love gained. And really, if you take time to look within at your authentic self and where you would have gone without that conditioning, you may find yourself on a very different road. Yeah. And I think something important to note here too is that while it begins right within our, our family structure with our parents, those are the people from whom we receive these messages, over time, it expands. We might not even be hearing those messages directly from our family or from our parents no longer. Mm-hmm. However, we're now looking to our, our friends or to our romantic partners or to an, an expert and, and looking to them um, to help direct us or to guide us. So it might not be, it might not look like in adulthood us going back to our family and asking them, um, though some of us do do that as well. Like I said, oftentimes it expands to those that are in current relationship with us. However, we, you know, vet through them, we look to them, we see how, you know, positively they respond to what we're doing in life. Um, And again, that's still a byproduct of that molding, that shaping, those different messages that happened in those core family or in those core caregiving relationships early on. That's a really great point, Nicole. I've noticed even in my life as as I've grown this sort of default to looking around me externally, like, okay, well, I've got this sort of job, I've got this certification, always wanting to get the next thing for really a societal approval. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate that point because it is it is really valuable to sort of zoom out from this micro that we're talking about with parent figures here and zoom out to a more macro, you know, society and worldly conditioning where we do have this sort of unspoken expectation in a lot of ways or unspoken influence around us to achieve certain things, to become a certain person, to live a certain molded life. That's actually a life we're seeing from external influence rather than this internal guide. I refer to it to, as blinders for me where I'll I've shared this with Nicole, like if, if you're talking to me passionately about something or it sounds really alluring, um, say, you know, you're an astronaut and you're telling me about going to space and like your love for being an astronaut, I suddenly <laughs> notice this little twirl in my mind of like, maybe I want to go do that. Maybe I want to go become an astronaut now because I'm so enthralled in it. So I use the term blinders for me, which really, I, for those of you listening, I'm closing my eyes right now and I have my hands mm-hmm. up on both sides of my head where it almost is like being at a bowling alley where you put the bumpers on. And for me, I have to close my eyes, turn the sound off from the outside and really put blinders up on either side of my eyes. And for me, that's going inward to say, okay, Jenna, who are you? What do you want? What's actually your path versus this 
influence that's around you, negative and positive. What a, a great point to even blow it up even more macro here, Jenna. Um, sometimes the molding and shaping that we experience that begins in childhood is societal. Some of us do grow up in cultures or in societies where there's very distinct messaging, especially those of us in the West. Um, there's a hierarchy of professions, of income statuses, and everything in between that, again, sh shapes us, that we see, we hear, starting in our school systems, reflected back on television and at society at large. So that's another really important point that applies to all of us. Speaking about societal or macro level messaging, another archetype that I think is really common um, is having a parent figure who does not model boundaries. I'm seeing quite universally um, boundaries are, are a little known thing, practice, and very few of us actually have boundaries in our lives. And a big reason is because many of us in childhood didn't have parent figures who modeled boundaries in their own relationships. They didn't have limits to the time or the energy that they shared with others or those around them. So what we saw was a lack of boundaries entirely. And what we saw was a lack of, of boundaries entirely. Another example in childhood is when our boundaries were violated by our parent figures or by our siblings. Having maybe a parent who shared overwhelming personal details with us as a child about the other parent, that's blurring an emotional boundary line. Not only are we not mature enough to understand some of these aspects of relationship, we're also in a really compromised position because chances are we love and we have a relationship with this other parent. Another really common example that happened to myself is having a parent figure who read a diary or who ransacked a room, right, looking for something in particular. Um, I had a mother who on one instance did read a diary and did see something that was troubling to her in it um, and approached me in a very explosive way about it. That sort of event is a boundary violation, right? Having our own childhood space, a diary to put down our thoughts and feelings or our own childhood room and then having a parent figure, again, consistently not allow us that, that safety or that space for ourselves is an example of this boundary violation. It may be obvious that having a boundary violation or a lack of boundaries being modeled to us as children could then result in adulthood as having limited or no boundaries at all and often having a guilt or shame, sort of this feel-bads about setting new boundaries and really maybe not even knowing what a boundary is. I think we're seeing now in present day, boundaries kind of seem to be this trending topic. And a lot of that I think is really people grasping onto something that they want or need and likely haven't had. I think many of us have had those blurred lines where, you know, as a child growing up for me, I didn't, there were no boundaries. There was no there was no separateness in, you know, whatever was happening in these custody battles or this divorce or opinions of one parent and another parent, what was happening in their, I'll say, personal lives, even though their personal lives truly were just meshed with my life. Um, there were a lot of things that I was told and knew about or knew what the other parent was doing behind the other parent's back that was of no business necessarily to a child because I didn't have the development or rationale to really to understand it or to grasp what was happening. And again, I'll just illuminate again here, you know, that happening in this case with my parents does not come from uh, really an awareness or a consciousness that that is what they were doing or that they lacked boundaries. For them, it was probably 
very likely that there were no boundaries themselves in their own childhoods or in their own adulthood and not necessarily the to, didn't have the tools or the knowledge to be able to instill them now, let alone teach them to their children. I know I'm a prime example of, of having had no no really boundaries in my childhood mm-hmm. outside of, of that diary example. Uh, a particular boundary that was completely absent was an emotional one. And what I mean when I say that is when one person in the family had a stress, for instance, my mom or my sister, the whole family unit was kind of wrapping down around that spiral of distress with them. Um, there was no separateness. There was no space for one human in, in the family to be stressed or having a difficult experience while the other family members were having a separate one. Now, this is different from compassion, from when we see someone we love that is stressed, of course we have a feeling, it's uncomfortable. This is when we share the same feeling. When stress happens for one in my family, stress happened for everyone. So talk about the feel bads. When I learned that I could have limits, that I was allowed to have a different emotion and that I often did from those around me and that my emotion was just as valid as someone else's in that moment, I still struggle to inhabit that separate space because I'm used to us all cycling in this same emotional spiral. So that's another example of lacking boundaries, emotional ones in particular, that I know I lacked entirely in childhood. So as I now begin to create new boundaries, begin to set new limits, I feel bad all of the time um, because it's unfamiliar, because I'm I'm used to right having a different experience. And when that's not the case, when everyone around me isn't in my pile of stress, I feel distant from them. I don't feel as close. Um, So for some of us that lacked boundaries, that shared emotional experience does feel like a closeness. Though to actually authentically connect with another, we have to have space for that reality that I might be having a stress that Jenna isn't to the same experience in any given moment. I've been noticing this personally in real time where, you know, we may be sitting around working or discussing something or something's happened and I get brought to whether it's a trigger or some reaction or response, like a lower place or a sad place, a frustrated place. And when I see the people around me in the same room or in my environment who are, you know, still happy or still elevated, still excited, and I haven't dragged them down to the trenches with me, I watch myself get frustrated. And it's a really cool place now because I'm able to see myself get frustrated and think, oh, wow, I'm now making you wrong for not plummeting down to this dark place with me. And because of the practice over time and and really the tools that we are laying out in this book that Nicole so beautifully has gifted you in this book, I'm able to now see, oh, I'm I'm actually really angry. I'm really making them wrong for the fact that they're not destroyed while I'm destroyed right now. And in the same moment, I'm able to actually reframe it and realize, oh, good for them. Like that's a healthy boundary. That's a place where there wasn't a boundary before and I didn't necessarily even know that it was missing. And now I'm able to see that there was a boundary that was missing and it's actually something that I'm really able to acknowledge and celebrate both with the people around me for holding their own boundary and being true to them and also to myself in realizing, okay, this is just an emotion. This is something I'm processing. I can stay in it or I can come out of it. And it's not to project onto the rest of the environment around me. That in itself is a boundary that I didn't know I was missing before. 
Yeah, and I think probably a lot of listeners, Jenna, out there may, are likely resonating um, with this whole topic of boundaries. So worry not. Um, in a few chapters and a few episodes, we have a whole one devoted to boundaries um, with some helpful tools to begin to create new boundaries and keep new boundaries in our life. So we're going to be talking a lot more about boundaries. They really are integral into healing. Um, and like I said, there are so many of us that aren't having boundaries that could be incredibly helpful because, again, we weren't modeled them in childhood. So we become the adult that does exactly as we were modeled, often lacking boundaries in our lives. Another childhood archetype that we're going to dive a bit deeper into is having a parent figure who is overly focused on appearance. Um, this common examples are parent figures who, con again, consistently here comment on a child's appearance, you know, maybe their physical body, their weight, how it's shaped, maybe their clothing or their act of self-expression, um, constantly getting comments, maybe just even spoken about or acknowledged, um, over-focus sometimes it looks like. And then there could be all different assessments, our parents giving opinions um, on what they think about how we appear. Again, when this happens consistently, we carry the effects of that into adulthood. Sometimes it's not necessarily us that's receiving that over-focus of appearance. However, we see our parents overly focusing on their own appearance, always obsessing about their weight, always talking about the next diet that they're on, or just pointing out their flaws. So it might not even be something that's shared directly with us. Um, this might look like just hearing or seeing um, our parents having that over-focus. Another example, is when we have the experience of what I call wearing a mask or, or consistently witnessing a parent figure who appears one way, per, perhaps in the home or likely in the home, and then appears a different way outside of the home. Um, so maybe the parent who's very reactive in the home or very angry, and then they leave out the door and that anger seems to have evaporated and they almost do a 180. Um, and they're very pleasant, very jovial, maybe even joking. Um, again, seeing that different presentation, and a lot of times it does kind of map onto how is this caregiver or a parent figure in the home, or maybe in a particular relationship and then seeing evidence of them being different in one way or maybe even in a complete way outside of the home. It's this idea of kind of wearing a mask. As an adult, this can result in similar shape-shifting or appearance-motivated behavior. For me personally, I grew up with a mother whose nails I've never seen not painted. She always had these deep red burgundy nails that she'd even, as we're getting in the car to go drop us off wherever we were being dropped, she'd be in the driver's seat painting her nails and drying them out the window. Very focused on how she looked externally, always commenting. I think, you know, the only thing I really ever heard as a child, also because she was never around, was this comment on appearance or Jenna's so pretty or Jenna, your uncle always said, you know, Jenna's the prettiest girl in the world. And while it felt good, I'm using air quotes for those of you who are listening, it seemed to felt good, right? That's a compliment. So it's supposed to feel good. I also grew to be so overly focused on that appearance was what mattered. Appearance was the most the most important thing when for me, there was no real depth there. And I think back, I played women's flag football for a few years in Boston and we're, we're out on a field getting covered with dirt, right? Running around playing football. And I was that girl who showed up every time perfectly like bright pink painted, my nails are painted now, I just noticed, bright pink painted nails and I wouldn't leave the house without 
full makeup, even just to go to football practice or a football game. And it was the first time, you know, every time I saw my mom, the first thing I'd get commented on was my appearance. I remember she called me once and asked, she wanted to send me a shirt and she asked what size I was. And I, I was paused to actually think, okay, what size shirt do I want? And she said something like, you know, are you, are you a medium? Like, that's okay, Jen. It's all right if you're a medium. And I remember being so struck. And at that point, I wasn't offended. I was able to rationalize it and kind of giggle about it. But I realized, oh, it's there to her. There is this, I know she has past traumas about her size. I've always known her as tiny. And that is a wound from her from childhood that I could see in real time being projected onto me that she's letting me know in a, what to her a loving way, like, it's okay if you're not a small, that's all right. Whereas to me, I didn't at that point, hadn't really thought twice about it and it didn't quite matter much. So that's just a personal example of what this overly focused appearance driven may look like and how transferring into adulthood, it's actually been, it was a practice for me to at one point completely stop wearing makeup, stop painting my nails and really just learn who I was naturally, which over time allowed me to understand authentically that I actually love nail polish. I actually mm -hmm. like all these things, you know, products or whatever. I like looking good. I like feeling good. And that didn't come from a need to search for approval or gain love from another, but it really, I went on my own path of kind of revolting against it and then now embracing it, realizing it actually does come from an authentic place for me personally. So a very similar example, though it didn't look like nail polish. Um, I have very vivid memories of when I was in adolescence and I was very athletic and I discovered soccer shorts. Um, and once I discovered athleisure, as we now call it, I loved it and that's all I wanted to wear. And I have very vivid memories. Um, thankfully, I went to a Catholic grade school, so I wore a uniform, though on instances where there was you know, a, a class dance or any time I had the opportunity, a field trip day, to wear my own picked outfit to school, I have very vivid memories of my mom begging me and using language, please, for me, please wear jeans, Nicole, please put dungarees on. Um, and I just wanted to wear my soccer shorts. Um, that was what I was most comfortable in. Um, and at that time, you know, hearing from my mom, even hearing, you know, her, her please, her beg, um, please wear this, that can begin to register, you know, for us. At that time, I didn't realize this was shared with me more into adulthood. I had a mother who very similarly did hear very critical things from her own mother. Some of this is very generational and might even fall upon gender lines. Um, she had a parent who on multiple occasions would talk about one of the infamous stories is bringing beer for a family party in the back door so the quote-unquote neighbors won't see. Um, this is, again, other examples of this sort of messaging. So sometimes it's right very individualized where we're being told what to wear or what not to wear, um, maybe even kind of urged into making some of those decisions. And some of it's more worried about what do the Joneses up the block think or, or what will my family think of my family and its presentation. And oftentimes, similar to my mom, it does come from their own lived experience themselves. So it's not that my mom was trying to be critical um, of either of her, all of her children. My sister my, and myself had a, a little more, I think, of that appearance-driven commentary. I imagine for my mom, it was coming from a very well-intentioned place in what she believed, right, would be for best for us and was a remnant of what she heard growing up. And again, like I said, sometimes it doesn't, it's not individualized. Sometimes it's 
macro and it's projected upon the family where we have these family images that we're urged to uphold to present oneself as a family that appears in whatever way um, and again a lot of times this comes as a remnant of our own parents upbringing speaking of the macro just one last point i think it's really important what you just said we're all conditioned even flipping through magazines. I know a lot has been changing over the last couple of years and realizing the uniqueness of being human, the uniqueness and individuality amongst us. And we're slowly beginning to see that represented in some ways across media. And on that macro level of society and of media, we all very much have been unconsciously conditioned in many ways to look a certain way, to appear a certain way, to keep certain behavior behind closed doors because it's not acceptable in public. So there is very much in all that we're talking, the micro, the parent figure, that that caretaker that was around you as a child, and also the society at large, the culture that you're in, the media that you've been soaking up, whether it's just in the background as a child or when you're intently watching as an adult, these are all very much factors that that indicate and strengthen what we're talking about here with these appearance-driven or this shape-shifting to appease, to feel accepted almost in a tribal way to the society around us. Yeah, yes, really, really great point. And this, I do believe, applies to every one of these that we're talking about. There is a lot in the macro messaging, in the society, in the culture that might also be coloring the patterns that we're, we're reliving through adulthood. Another really common and final archetype that I want us to dive into um, is having a parent figure who cannot regulate their emotions. And the reason why I'm saying this is quite common is I, I find many of us into adulthood really struggle um, with emotional maturity, with the ability to feel our emotions and to express them in a way that's safe for those around us. And the, the majority of us have had parent figures who can't cope or can't regulate their emotions. And it can look either like exploding, screaming, yelling, slamming doors, throwing things, right? When all of the energy is discharged outward, sometimes we're the victim, right? Or we're the receiver of this very overwhelming energy in childhood. And sometimes it looks like the opposite, where the parent figure withdraws out of that same overwhelm or ices or disconnects. And again, there's all of that spectrum in between. So when we have parents, parents who can't right healthily have an emotion express an emotion and where instead it comes out either in that very overwhelming way where we're being screamed at or it might be equally overwhelming because the person that we love or we need in that moment is absent completely because they're withdrawn. Again, this originate in the parent figure's inability to cope with their own emotions. They don't have the tools. So what you're seeing in that moment is their best attempt at tolerating or at dealing with a very big emotion that's very real. As adults, we often see similar coping mechanisms that we witnessed as children from our parent figures, from these caretakers, whether that was that yelling, screaming, projecting, or maybe in many cases for me with my mother, it was this withdrawing. It was quiet. I never saw her scream. I saw her scared. I saw her hide. I saw her in moments scream out of fear. And on the opposite side, I saw from my father, it was a very outward, actionable and loud, you know, slamming, fighting, arguing, throwing, breaking. So I saw both sides of that. And I can see now in adulthood where I then adopted similar coping mechanisms for a large portion of adulthood. For me, 
I would retreat. I would go into a really dark space. I would keep to myself. I was afraid. I was very sad. And I didn't project that outward. I kind of retreated into a hole and no one could really get to me. I would love you, but you couldn't really get to my heart. I wasn't willing to connect. Um, I saw that for most probably the last two decades, um, and newly now being around new people and new experiences have seen the opposite come in, where I've seen new triggers come in that have ignited these wounds in me that I didn't necessarily have access to before, where I've responded to you know, a lack of coping mechanisms, a lack of emotional resilience, even now in present day, where my immediate re response is to tantrum, it's to yell, it's to slam a door, it's like, all of my body heat suddenly rises to boiling and I can feel my hand shaking. And there's this anger that almost spooks me of like, you know, what, where did you come from? Where is this from? And just as we're speaking now, I can see where for me, it was my mother and father and I could see polar opposite ends of the spectrum where one did withdraw the other was quite the opposite. And for the majority of my life, I went into this withdrawal. I mirrored the coping mechanisms of my mother. I mirrored that lack of emotional resilience. And on this journey of you know healing, putting these tools into place, really gaining my own foundation, connecting to my true self and my own healing journey, I'm still now seeing the past creep in again, where it, it wasn't there before, but I didn't, I wasn't far along yet on my journey to have access to the tools to be able to deal with it, which I think maybe is why now I'm experiencing, you know, those tantrums or that reaction for the first time, because it was there all along. I wasn't yet equipped with what I needed to cope with it. And now suddenly there's these new triggers that are rising it all to the surface and I'm able to bear witness to it now and love myself in a way as it's arising. I mean, I've definitely slammed some doors and thrown some tantrums and said some things I would have loved to have not said. And I'm in a safe space to be able to acknowledge it and reflect back on it and really see where that comes from. And most importantly now, take responsibility for it and really own, oh, okay, that's where it came from. I'm okay. I can make a new choice now. I love that. And I want to honor you for sharing that, Jenna. Um, very similar to you, you know, having for me a mother who's very withdrawn, having a father who was able to access anger in particular. So there were some explosive moments um, in the home, particularly around stress. When it got too big, mm -hmm. my dad, it would begin to erupt outward, usually in some version of anger. So very similar to you. I saw both extremes. And the reason why I'm honoring you is I know how difficult it is to see those patterns in yourself. I know for me, you know, really coming to the awareness, really witnessing and living now embodied, being present consciously for that tantrum, and also seeing all of the moments where I wasn't there, um, seeing all of those withdrawal moments and choices and, you know, the absence of me and all of the byproduct that that carried into my life is painful. Um, so I really do want to honor those of us that begin to look at how we navigate our emotions um, and that begin to then see very similar coping mechanisms that our parents used. It can bring up pain. It can bring up shame because for the most part, we know how it feels to be on the receiving end of it. So as we see ourselves, you know, in action, causing those same quote unquote harms, if you will, to those around us, it can be an incredibly painful realization, though, one we can make compassionately because we can't hold ourselves up to an expectation that we know how to navigate our emotions when we weren't ever taught. I mean, here I am speaking as a clinical psychologist who went to school for a very long time to seemingly learn about emotions who had no idea 
how to navigate her own emotions. Again, because I was never taught. I wasn't consciously present in my body to know what to do. So quite often even, this pattern of withdrawal and eruption can go hand in hand. We might withdraw and repress and suppress as long as we can, and then it comes exploding out. So because this is so universal, we'll meet in, again, a couple episodes, a whole chapter now on emotional maturity, on how to begin to break these patterns into adulthood if you are, like Jenna and I, universally resonating um, with this experience, not having been modeled the tools for emotional resilience in our childhood likely means that in adulthood, we have no idea how to deal with our emotions. (laughs) Uh, Page 60 in the book brings you to a section called Do the Work, Identify Your Childhood Wounds. So for those of you who are watching or listening and really wanting to go deeper into what we're talking about here and or put these tools really into practice, page 60 um, 60 through 64 of the book gives you a practical set of tools for each of the archetypes we've talked about for you to really discover and explore your own childhood wounds, as it really does take your own learning of yourself, your own reflection to really be able to go to work and do the work. I appreciate you pointing that out. I know probably many of you listening might already know the archetype or the experiences that you have had in childhood. And those that don't dive in, look at this assessment, you know, begin to explore because chances are there probably were, you know, experiences that happened consistently enough that led to, right, overwhelm and inability to cope, distancing from ourself, our own core needs of the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual body, and that have resulted in some you know, adaptations or some coping mechanisms or just our general way of being that we're living into adulthood. Trauma is universal. Um, there are, there usually is something and usually the area in which we're stuck probably maps onto something deeper. One of these patterns or many, I get asked this question a lot. Do I have to fit neatly into one box? Absolutely not. There might be many of these archetypes that you're identifying with or resonating with. So diving in, exploring, beginning to understand, especially if you're out there listening and like we talked about earlier, you might not have memories. Maybe you're like me. You don't have that kind of replay of what happened in childhood. Begin to look now. Begin to explore for yourself now. For instance, how do you regulate your emotions? Can you? Do you have boundaries in your life? Do you feel fulfilled in in your job, right? How connected do you feel to those around you? Are you able to authentically self-express or are you always worried about how how you might appear to someone else? And if you've answered yes to any of those current patterns, chances are there was some version of this childhood trauma. I and we do have so much compassion for understanding the uncomfortableness um, or discomfort in looking at these childhood wounds and how we'd prefer to look away, how we would prefer to dissociate. So I also uh, challenge you to use this as a space for self-discovery to to reflect back and look at maybe what what did happen looking at these traumas? I mean, according to ACEs, I've scored a 10 on the ACEs scale. So technically my trauma is like out the window, right? And really it's reflecting back and looking at all of the actual experiences, what actually happened that's allowed me to spend time in this self-discovery to really connect with my authentic self, to quite literally get rid of all of the 
all of this societal debris on the outside in a way to put my blinders up, like I referenced before, and really tune into me and what's true for Jenna to quite literally manifest and journal my way into even this podcast now and working with Nicole and teaching what it is that we're teaching. The only access I had to doing those things, to creating the life that I have right now and continue to create was by spending that time in self-discovery, by being brave enough to say, you know what, I'm going to look back. I'm going to look back at all these wounds that, you know, scarred over. They certainly didn't heal. And really for me, just rip open all of the scars and dive back in. And again, it was uncomfortable. It was painful. It's taken a lot of years. And as mentioned here in this podcast, I'm very much, and we are very much, all still on that journey. It's not a one and done. So I really challenge you to spend some time in self-discovery and also really applaud you and acknowledge you for taking the time even just to listen here and to even put this into your ethers, into the realm of, of your existence and to choose to go to work when the time is right for you. And whether or not you score a 10 on the ACE scale <laughs> or like a one Jenna has or, or a one, right? Really understanding some of these areas where you're stuck and beginning to explore and, and acknowledging like Jenna is beautifully speaking that there, it will be uncomfortable. Part of the reason why so many of us avoid the work, uh, avoid being conscious, live on our spaceships for some of us for a lifetime is because of how uncomfortable it is. There's safety, there's protection, there's familiarity when we don't look, when we don't begin to peel back that onion. So speaking of discomfort, we have a question coming in about just that from Yvonne. Hi, my name is Yvonne, I'm from North Dakota. And my question is actually there's two questions. If, if there are many people who are unable to point to moments that broke life apart from trauma and clearly weren't obvious until recently, such as in my case, um, the grief working through these tough emotions is so overwhelming. How long does this period last? The emotional unavailability of so many people in my life has created so much pain. How does someone like me get beyond this and be willing to trust again in hopes of shattering the broken patterns of the past and growing up with emotionally unavailable caregivers? Yvonne's question here is really highlighting, as we were just talking about, regardless of what age you become conscious or begin this journey of healing, there's often discomfort there as we begin to peel back the onion and realize, right, the childhood wounding, the traumas that we're carrying with us. It's really understandable to begin to feel grief, sadness, loss, anger, a million different feelings. Here, it's really important to honor, to create the space, to be compassionate, to allow those feelings to be. Many of us have never allowed ourselves to fully see what happened and to feel about it. We've suppressed. So the, the first step in healing for many of us is becoming conscious to not just what happened, though to how we feel about what happened and creating the space to do so. The particularly important practice here is doing so non-judgmentally, not judging ourselves for having the feelings, for feeling grief, for feeling sad, to allow it to be. As we become conscious, especially those of us who had emotionally unavailable caregivers, like I know myself did, 
One pattern we might become conscious to is our emotional unavailability that we now carry. So something I'll share for a very long time, I would have relationships uh, and I would feel consistently emotionally disconnected. I didn't feel like there was emotional depth. Instead of looking at the role that I was playing, I did, I think what a lot of us do, I thought it was my partner's issue. I would, you know, go through partners and think, oh, well, if only I would find someone who could really emotionally connect with me, never realizing the role that I was playing. What I came to, to the awareness was that I was remaining emotionally disconnected from these people. So I don't know, Yvonne, if this is mapping onto your experience, though I know a lot of us who were modeled emotional unavailability in, in childhood don't actually know how to be emotionally intimate with other people. Yet a lot of us, like myself, we believe it's the other people who are not right meeting us in our emotional needs without realizing the role that we're playing. So the second part of this question, once we begin to allow consciously into our awareness how we feel about what happened, now we want to begin to look at how the effects of what happened are, are coloring our current experience. And what some of us might see is that continued emotional unavailability in our relationships, again, beginning to explore what role we're playing. Are we sharing? Are we going to our friends and our partners when we're having an emotion and allowing them to connect with us? And a lot of people will see how we're not, how we're remaining just as emotionally unavailable as those caregivers who raised us. I can feel Yvonne's question very deeply in my body as I'm listening to her share it and remember this time for me very well and still in many situations, or I shouldn't say many, there are a few circumstances still from my childhood that kind of live in my memory as somewhat of an existence of, you know, may have happened, may not have happened, really knowing in my soul that there was some trauma that that did occur that I'm still not willing to acknowledge. I'm still not willing to grieve it. I'm not willing to accept it. And I'm not making myself wrong for that. At some point, I will, and we'll be able to, you know, deal with some things face on. And I say that to be really transparent that even though you know, we're up here speaking to you, it is very much in real time that we're also human. I'm going through the exact same things in facing those, that grief or that pain or that suffering. And it really, Yvonne, um, it tugs at my heart when I hear you speaking. And I have a lot of compassion for you and for anyone going, going through this or experiencing this. And also for myself, like Nicole highlighted, you know, that emotional unavailability of others and really that it's first being emotionally available to yourself. And what does that even look like? What does Yvonne even look like? Who is Jenna? And when we're talking about this, you know, beginning to trust someone else or beginning to trust others, how do we rebuild that? How do we gain that? And first, you must have that foundation with yourself. For me personally, trust was a and still is a very, very tall ladder for me to climb. And my access to, you know, stepping up on the rungs of that ladder is really to spend time in self-discovery with me and to use the tools that I have, the tools that are laid out in this book to cultivate and build and strengthen that muscle of self-trust within myself. And also all along the way, being very conscious and very intentional to having compassion for that feeling of brokenness or that feeling of grief and also not making myself wrong for it. If you're experiencing that or you're going through that in many ways, you're right on track. 
Um, I don't know of many people who have been on a deep healing journey. I don't think any actually who haven't experienced this discomfort or this, this deep pain and this deep loss. As we referenced in you know, talking about the dark night of the soul, it actually does feel literally like a physical death. So really remembering to intentionally just create space for this grieving and to not make yourself wrong for it. And for a lot of us, that means honoring the different versions of the different ways grief can look. Um, for some of us, it comes in waves. For some of us, we hit a, a bottom and we stay there consistently. Um, there's many different versions of what grief looks like. I can remember having both, having periods of time um, where as things became into my conscious awareness, I just generally felt sad. Um, and I also remember moments of time where I was, you know, in, in a bucket of tears. I felt so debilitating. I felt so in grief. And it can look like any version in between. So holding space for how grief looks when it comes, how long it stays is definitely part of the journey. And then shifting into the second part of Yvonne's question, beginning to explore breaking those habits. And like Jenna beautifully put, oftentimes when we're talking about relationships with others, where we're really beginning the work is relating with ourselves. That means being emotionally vulnerable and intimate with ourselves first. How can I begin to gift my loved ones with how I feel before I know how I feel? And I know for me, there's still many moments, I'm sure Jenna can think of many, where she's asked me directly how I feel about something. And my answer is, I don't know yet. I can't gift you with intimacy in that moment to share how I'm feeling until I'm clear myself. And again, for some of us, that's a process. There are the waves, right, of that realization that come. We have to carve out the space to learn ourselves. So before we talk about emotionally being vulnerable and connected to others, a lot of us have to build that pillar of foundational connection with ourselves. And a lot of that does come in, as you're talking about, Nicole, these waves coming in and out. It comes in real-time moments of maybe that wave of grief coming up or hitting you suddenly and being able to ground yourself in that moment, maybe placing your hands on your heart, taking a few deep breaths, coming back to just feeling the breath in your body, acknowledging, you know, I'm, I'm sitting on the couch right now. The lights are on. Um, I'm drinking tea, coming back to your senses in a really grounding way. Um, for me personally, this still, I highlight this in that wave coming back because I'm experiencing this now still in real time where things are really stable right now. I'm around a lot of love and a lot of support. I know where things are going. All of this is very new to me. And I could see even this morning I was sharing with Nicole, I can see myself still now going into moments of, of panic or of grief waiting for something to explode. And the reason I'm going back to that is also because there's comfort in that. For having emotionally unavailable parents um, as a child, like Yvonne, you're saying, not having that trust of others around me or not growing up with that support, I'm used to a chaotic time. That's actually comfort for me. My body knows chaos and stress and disarray and pain as comfort. So I wanted to default back there. I mean, we pay money to go watch sad movies. There's part of us that enjoys this feeling of sadness or this grief because we know it. It's, it's something that, that was kind of part of our molding in our upbringing. So we retreat there in safety. 
Um, and I notice those moments still now coming in where, you know, things are good. I'm, I'm doing fine. And then suddenly this huge wave of like of grief or of sadness or pain comes back in. And it's not that I'm not healing. It's actually quite the opposite. It's that that wave of emotion comes in there. I'm able in that moment now after continuing, continuing to practice these tools to really put my hands in my heart, remind myself that I am okay. And also to be a witness that this feeling and sensation that's coming back in is quite literally doing just that. It's coming back in and then it's going back out. It's coming in and out in a wave, which then gives me more access to really be witness to the fact that I'm not that. I'm not the pain. I'm not the grief. I'm not the sadness. I'm this much broader, more powerful entity at soul or essence, whatever you want to call it, that's witnessing in this emotion that's flowing in and out. So really having compassion for yourself in those moments and finding a way or a practice as simple as noticing grief come in suddenly, putting your hand on your heart, or finding something that works for you in real time to repetitively start to build that muscle of grounding, of self-trust and self-love. Absolutely. And speaking of safety, you mentioned that. And safety is an incredibly important component for our healing journey. And we have a question about just that coming in from Carrie. Hi, my name is Carrie. I'm calling from Connecticut. And I wrote my question down this time, so I wouldn't forget it. My question is, how do you do the work when, A, you don't feel safe enough to let your guard down, to allow yourself to become aware, and B, you have experienced trauma from spirituality and you are afraid to open back up to it. Thanks for all you do. Take care. Bye. I want to honor Carrie and anyone else out there who's feeling fearful. Um, fear, feeling afraid is, is definitely part of this journey. Again, as we peel back those onions, what we see, what we feel, especially when we're aware that bad things happened, many of us are afraid to begin the, the journey of awareness and the journey of, of change, of acknowledging what happened so that we can, again, begin to break some of those patterns that we're carrying with us as a result of what happened. So feeling afraid is definitely part of healing. We feel afraid when we're going into an unfamiliar space. Feeling afraid, it's so important to, when we're changing, when we're doing anything, to cultivate safety because fear activates our nervous system. And when we're in that state of fight, flight, or freeze, whatever it is that we shift into, we're in that state because we feel some degree of fear. We feel a threat. And likely it's because we're entering into some new space or revisiting a feeling that we know is going to be difficult for us. It activates our nervous system. What we want to begin to do, because we don't want to overwhelm our, ourselves. We already or are overwhelmed, any of us who are beginning to create change, anytime we step into that unknown, it's overwhelming for our subconscious. So as we begin, we want to widen the window slowly, gradually. We don't want to dive in the deep end, you know, review the trauma, the, the most terrible thing that happened to us and have all of that wash of feelings because chances are if and when we do that, we're going to default into that habitual coping method. The thing we always do, we'll scream, we'll yell, or we'll dissociate or whatever version in between. We want to learn how to cultivate safety 
consciously in our bodies. We want to learn how to regulate our nervous system gradually so that we can show ourselves how much stress we can tolerate. One of the biggest messages that we communicate it to our subconscious as we distract it or projected our stress outward was that we can't actually tolerate it. And then the more we flipped into that default network, not tolerating it, not consciously dealing with it, we strengthen that message. So what we want to do now is empower ourselves to be in our bodies and to show ourselves how much we can tolerate, though we want to do so gradually as not to overwhelm the system. This answer ties in a bit to the last answer, really coming back to to your body and to that grounding. And also, which just pinged to me as you're talking, that self-trust that I talked about earlier and in being able to have new triggers or traumas come up now, being able to bear witness to them, I truly believe because now I have access to tools to help me through them. So also as I'm hearing and reading your question, Carrie, acknowledging yourself too and really trusting in yourself that you will be able to deal with the things that arise in the right time that you are meant to on your journey. As you gain new skills, as you do practice more, you find new tools that you put into practice, you are strengthening this muscle of consciousness. You are strengthening this trust in your own self that new things are arising or facing these dark things from the past are coming to you in that moment because somewhere it might take some digging and searching, you do have and are equipped with the tools and practices to face them head on in that moment or else they wouldn't be showing up for you. Um, one of those, again, I'll reiterate from the last question, really is, as Nicole's saying, that feeling of safety. You can't really go further in addressing or dealing with these past traumas or really face them head on if you're not safe, if your body isn't at that baseline. So as we said to Yvonne, really coming back to grounding, using your senses. We talk a lot in the self-healer circle, really bringing everyone kind of back to back to the foundation or ground zero in many ways of using your eyes, your sight, your taste, your touch, your smell, whatever you have access to. So quite literally now we're sitting in the studio I have a mug of coffee here so I can I could smell my coffee if it was still there. It's empty. I can see the bright lights. I can feel myself sitting on the chair. I can feel my feet on the ground beneath me. I can hear Nicole talking. I can hear sometimes when a really loud truck drives by outside. I'm using my senses in this moment in a really simple way to literally bring myself back. And I know we can't see what's happening inside of our bodies as I'm describing that, but when you are grounding, when you're coming back to this balance, you're quite literally inside bringing your nervous system back into a balanced state so your cells aren't bouncing off the walls in such chaos. Coming back here into this space gives you access to a feeling of internal safety, quite literally represented inside your body, inside your nervous system, which then allows you to dive deeper. So for I will always say, and you'll always see me do, I, I put my hands to my heart just instinctively. So in those moments of creating safety or needing to face something or maybe insecurity arising or fear arising, that fear is meant to protect me, right? So I'm not angry that it's there. Instead, I'm kind of saying, hey, fear, I know you're usually here in the driver's seat. You're still with me. I get that you want to protect me. Thanks for being here. Almost meeting it with gratitude, not almost, quite literally meeting that fear with gratitude, allowing it to be there and just kindly placing it in the back seat, 
when we're in our bodies is again, where we can begin to cultivate safety, being present to how our body is experiencing the moment. A lot of times when we're in our, our, our fear state, it's because of what we're imagining. It's because we're living in the past. It's because we're locked in again to that subconscious loop of what had happened. Most often it's not what's happening now. So even the act of coming into presence for a lot of us can dissipate the fear because for a lot of us, the fear isn't right here, right now. It's living in our mind. It's living in our past. Doesn't mean it's any less real. Like Jenna's saying, it's still very real, but it doesn't have to be a wash. It doesn't have to take over. Like Jenna said, it doesn't have to be in the driver's seat. We can share space with it and we can do so gently. I suggest we do so gently. And I want to also acknowledge and honor your own bodies out there. You'll know when to hit pause. You'll know when it's not the day to right do the work or to, to sit in meditation. You'll know and beginning to cultivate that trust, that inner knowing is equally as important on this journey of creating safety, showing yourself that you do know. You maybe at one point didn't have someone outside of you to tell you when your limit was reached or passed. Now you have that 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 place inside. So you'll know how much you can tolerate and you'll know when you need to, to stop or to hit pause. There's many moments where when I don't have resources, I know that that's not the moment to have an emotional conversation for me, or that's not the moment to challenge myself because those are the moments when I'm overwhelmed already. So having that awareness, being a really intimate knower of the self helps set ourselves up to succeed, to put ourselves in a situation where we can safely begin to consciously bear witness to our wounds and to how they're affecting us into our adulthood. Our last question for today comes from Noelle in Orange County. Hi, my name is Noelle from Orange County. And I'm wondering how you have a relationship with your parents who have um, unresolved issues who have helped pass down some of those issues and trauma on to us as kids. Thanks. Thank you, Noelle. So part of this question, I'm going to answer very similarly to as we were talking about with Yvonne. Again, honoring how you feel, even living in home as we become aware of a lot of these habits and patterns that were um, communicated or modeled to us from our caregivers, honoring everything we feel about what we're seeing, the grief, the anger, that's definitely still part of this journey here. Um, I think here, especially when we're talking about family, especially when we're talking about family with whom we might live, I hear often, and it's very understandable, a lot of us feel compelled or inspired to have a conversation with our family, to share with them maybe what we're learning. Um, a lot of times the intention for that conversation is to seek an apology or maybe to have our experience validated. While that's definitely understandable and can be incredibly healing, those of us that are able to have these very direct and honest conversations with our caregivers, not all of the time will we get that reception or that response. Not all of our caregivers will see the patterns that we're seeing. Not all of our caregivers will validate our experience as it was. So if we are compelled or motivated to have that conversation, having our intention being to express this truth or this reality for ourselves, regardless 
of what the person does. The person will likely react in one of those ways. They'll hear you maybe over time and they'll accept what you're saying. Not all of the time will they. So if we can carve out an intention that I'm sharing this with my caregivers, maybe with whom I live, because I can find a value in expressing my truth. I no longer need you to validate it for me or to even apologize, not even to acknowledge that you played a part in this. If I can have some healing by just acknowledging it for myself, that's a great intention to go into this conversation with. And then of course, I think the, the bigger part of this question is, what do I do? How do I now have a relationship with these people? Now here's the moment where we really have to focus on ourselves, on changing ourselves and how we're showing up to these relationships with the parents with whom we maybe live, as opposed to the pathway that I think a lot of us take, asking our parents to change, asking the family dynamic to shift around us. This is where the conversation we began having about boundaries that we'll have a whole episode on in a few weeks really applies. This is where we begin to show up differently to those parents, to show up in a new way. We begin to change regardless of if they're changing around us. Radical acceptance is the first thing that comes to mind here. And one of the most valuable things I learned from a coach or a mentor along the way who really helped me create a new relationship with my mother now, who if you hear me talk about her now and it sounds like, you know, we converse, we are in communication. And what you don't see is that there was probably 10 or 15 years that, you know, we we really didn't. There were three or four years where we didn't speak at all. And it's a it is a polar opposite or full circle, I should say, relationship now that I have access to with them because, or with my mother in particular, because of radical acceptance. And I had a mentor who was just very cut and dry with me and I kept wanting my mom to change. You know, she's she's unwell, she has cancer, she has a, a few other diagnoses that, you know, really they're noticeable, they're taxing. And I see where they've come from, what life choices they've come from, particularly drinking and smoking, which to this day, she still chooses to continue to do. And for a long time, I made that wrong. And if you're listening and you hear that and know, you know, someone has COPD or lung cancer, and then, you know, they're still smoking, we go into this like make wrong, like, well, it's your fault. And I've now become able to get to a place of peace with it, where this mentor then said to me very clearly after hearing me go around in cycles and cycles of this agony of, you know, wanting to fix and change my mom, that Jenna, your mom is a grown woman. She's making the choices she wants to make and that's that. And, you know, it might've been said a little bit differently, a little bit more directly and it really resonated and I really got it. And I was able to, with practice, get to a place of really radical acceptance of my mother in particular and to stop making her wrong. She is who she is. She's had the experiences she's had. She makes the choices that she makes and that's her. I can choose to accept her and have her in my life or I cannot. Now, if it was a situation where the experience or connection to my mother was in some way unsafe, that would be different. Here in this case, I'm not putting myself into an unsafe environment by having this connection or radical acceptance of her. I'm choosing to just accept her wholly as she is without trying to fix and change her, which Nicole mentioned is this really important point that this begins first with you. Even on our healing journey, we notice, you know, you begin healing. What's the first thing most of us want to do? You want to run to the people around you and give them the book. You want them 
to go on the journey with you. You want them to heal. You want them to practice. You want them to join you. And not everyone is on the same path at the same time as you. Not everyone is ready. And it's the same with this idea that we can fix and change some external person. We can never worry, well, we can never really, we can't do that. We can't deal with what's going on over there with them. A friend of mine who's a really wonderful mentor and coach with his own clients uh, always paints this really beautifully. And when someone comes to them, you know, with a complaint or concern or something in relationship, it immediately directs to, you know, we're not dealing with the person over there. We're dealing with you. We can't fix or change or deal with someone who's not here. The only person that's here as you speaking is you. So it's really going back to you that is most important here that you can only truly focus on you over here and not this person over there. And I think what, what can be really helpful here, bringing this whole conversation, really this whole episode in full circle, especially those of us that have an awareness of our parents, of their upbringing, right? Many of us can gain an understanding of why our parents are the way they are. We might know the things that they were wounded around in childhood. We might know the things that they are carrying with them. So we might be able to enter that space of radical acceptance or of surrender a little bit easier because we don't have to necessarily take it personally. For me, it wasn't my, that my mom didn't love me enough to show up and allow me to fully self-express and to see all of me. It wasn't that at all. It actually wasn't about me ever. Um, and when we can do that, when we can pull back and see the bigger picture for ourselves, a lot of times we can gift that to those around us, even our caregivers. And those of us on the healing journey now know it's a daily commitment. To begin to create change, we have to consciously show up each and every day and begin to embody consistently new choices. It takes a lot of work to heal. So if it doesn't come from within, if we don't have that caregiver who is like, yes, you know, I, I want to engage in this journey for myself, chances are if they even attempt to do it, quote unquote, for you, that attempt probably will be very short lived. So bringing this all together, the more we're aware of our own past and how that shapes our current reality, the more we can compassionately hold that space for other people. It's not to say, Noelle, if you're out there listening, that it doesn't, it's not incredibly difficult to live in a home, to create boundaries, to begin a healing journey, to create change, to do it all, maybe without the support or maybe with the direct opposition of the family around us, of course it's difficult. This is where and why we've created the self-healer circle, the, the self-healer hashtag in and of itself exists. This is why community and finding maybe those outside relationships are incredibly important, especially if you're living in home um, with some of these relationships that are more challenging. Those of us can really benefit from seeking and building and cultivating new relationships outside of the home. Creating new relationships, as Nicole mentioned, may also mean creating new relationships with those same people, which brings us back again to radical acceptance also can be expanded into watching ourselves for that attachment or expectation of what we're wanting the relationship to be versus that radical acceptance of what the relationship is. Now, I've talked a bit about that example with my mom and what our relationship is now. With my father, I went through a period of 14 years up until about three years ago that I didn't see him at all. I had kind of spent my life chasing his love in a lot of ways and fantasizing over this relationship that didn't necessarily exist. And I say that for context that 
I then tried to recreate that relationship that never existed. I became attached and expected to have this depth or communication and connection versus now where I'm able to radically accept that a relationship, I'm using air quotes for those listening, with my father now looks like not being in communication. In my heart, I can feel that I'm in his heart and I know that I'm in his thoughts and I've let go and relinquished this expectation and this attachment of what I think our relationship should look like now or what I always desired it to look like and have really come to peace in witnessing what the relationship actually is, which seems really sparse. There is a lack of communication to a lot of people. There isn't connection. And for me, it's more now resides as a relationship and a feeling that does exist primarily in my heart. And I'm able to do so by radically accepting that that's what actually is happening in reality. And I'm not making it wrong. I'm not making it mean anything. I'm able to be at peace with it now because I'm no longer trying to hold on to something that isn't there. I'm no longer holding on to that expectation or that attachment. I'm actually just accepting what is. Such an empowering point here, Jenna. A lot of the times the work is first being aware of the expectations that we're holding. What are we expecting from someone? What are we demanding of someone? How are we viewing their role in this relationship? And when consistently over time, this person doesn't show up as we believe they should or wish they would, radical acceptance falling into that space where we then allow, this is for some of us where the grief comes, where the mm -hmm. sadness comes, where maybe even the anger comes. That for many of us is also where the healing comes. Because when we go and we look to someone to meet an expectation that they might not even A, be aware of, or B, be able to meet, what happens is we become resentful of that person. And resentment is actually one of the, the things that causes relationships to end or to at least deteriorate. So if we can pull back and maybe even understand why Jenna's dad, why my mom, why many people in our lives have the limitations that they have quite, uh, we can pull back and understand that many of the people have the limitations that they have in relationships with us based on their own wounding based on their own upbringing. That can again allow us to depersonalize, not make it about us at all or our enoughness or our lovability in that relationship. And it can actually allow us to create peace for ourselves, where we're not looking for someone to do something that they can't or won't do at this time. And again, we're conserving our energy to help us change. A lot of that piece, or I will say all of that piece, and that knowing in my heart that I reference that I know my father's love. I know that I'm on his mind and in his heart, not because we're communicating, but because I'm able now to have compassion as a witness to him just as a human and the childhood and experiences that he had growing up and the lack of access to the tools that I now have to be on this journey, to be here talking to you. And it really was able to break open in a lot of ways my heart and really connect with him on a deeper nonverbal level of knowing a lot of the things that it, 
he went through and also knowing there's a lot of things that I don't know that he went through that were very painful, were very traumatic and caused him to then respond and react in certain ways that ultimately, you know, hurt us as children were a lot of things for me to grieve through in adulthood and being able to be on my journey and be witness to that has actually grown my heart open in so many ways to have that compassion and love and connection in relationship to him, even though we don't technically have this communicative, like human to human, we're messaging or phoning all the time. As we become aware of the childhood experiences that we're carrying with us, as we gift that awareness to others, as we begin to understand the childhood experiences that all of those around us are carrying with them, we really do see how universal most of these experiences of trauma are. And next week, we're gonna dive a bit deeper into how trauma affects our body in particular, because it, it lodges itself in our bodies and it, we carry it with us and it affects all aspects of our being. So join us for next week's episode as we deep dive into chapter four, Trauma Body. As always, we will also end the episode with a question and answer. So if you would like to call in with your questions on chapter four, the number is 213-375-8385. The number is also there for you on the screen. Call in with your questions for chapter four with your name and location, and we look forward to hearing from you and chatting next week. Shh.